Welcome to the Rocks Podcast. The book of James brings a nice balance to the other New Testament letters. The Apostle Paul emphasizes that we are saved by faith alone and not by works. James, on the other hand, reminds us that true faith will produce good works, for faith without works is dead. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this very practical epistle. Heavenly Father, we pray that the study of your word would open the eyes of our understanding and that we would grasp these truths and be changed by them. James chapter 3, an important chapter in our study about how to live the Christian life, to be pleasing in your eyes. We pray that these truths would touch our hearts and set our, our hearts free. In Jesus' name, amen. The October 2007 California wildfires began burning in Southern California October 20th. And they were not fully contained until 19 days later. During that time, 1,500 homes were destroyed. Half a million acres of land burned from Santa Barbara to the U.S.-Mexico border. Nine lives were lost as a direct result of the fire. 85 people injured, and 61 of those were firefighters. The fire was even visible from space. Hard to believe that all that devastation, 19 days of raging hell, all began with one small spark. And that will be precisely James' point here in chapter 3, as he warns Christians about the devastating potential of the unbridled tongue. A few careless words launched by a very small but very active tongue can set your whole world on fire. Now, for a little context, these first century Christian um, Jews were in the pressure cooker of the Roman Empire, completely hostile to Christianity, and they were really compromising their devotion to the Lord. They were floundering in their faith, and James sends out this five-chapter kind of slap in the face in love to get them back on track, and sometimes that's what we need when we lose our way. Their faith had been derailed by their difficulties, and they were just thinking if they compromised their faith a little bit and fit into the Roman Empire a little bit easier, it would be more convenient for them. And uh, we have a tendency of doing that as well, to water down our Christian faith to make it go easier in this world that's so hostile and contrary to God's word and will. They were fond of saying, though, that, you know, they had faith, they believed in God, but really their lives were empty and uh, did not show their faith. Excuse me. So in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, there's a great line that says they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. And that was the case there for these Jewish believers. James was saying in his epistle, really, stop telling me how Christian you are. Show me your faith by how you live. Don't want to say the bumper stickers or the t-shirts, but just a life 
impacted by the grace of God. James says there'll be three basic areas that you'll be able to see whether or not you're Christian or not. If someone claims to know the Lord, really he's saying there's a way you can tell. Um, And his thesis statement there in chapter 1, verse 26, if anyone claims to be a Christian, there are three areas that will prove they have genuine soul-saving faith. They have controlled speech, a compassionate heart, and a moral life. I call that the thesis statement of James' epistle because the rest of James, all four chapters, really illustrate and elaborate how faith in God impacts those three areas. If Christ dwells in a heart by the presence of the Holy Spirit, the words we speak, the love we show, and the good we do will validate or invalidate that claim of professing Christ. So last week we saw in chapter 2, James has been arguing that genuine faith in God must express itself in kind deeds shown to those in need. And now he's going to turn back to the world's smallest but largest troublemaker, the tongue. So here's the the text in chapter 3, starting at verse 1. It's follow-up of the thought in chapter 1, where he says, If you think you're a Christian and say whatever you want, and you don't keep a tight rein on your tongue, your faith in God is worthless. Now picking up chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And with those 12 verses, we'll end that where the text is for our consideration this morning here really arguably are the most thorough teaching and the greatest focus on the tongue in the entire bible with a plea of of constant need of vigilance to keep the tongue in check so verses one and two james is going to begin with an exhortation really a sober one at that to would-be pastors and Christian teachers who make their life's work uh, around words. 
And also in verses 3 through 6, he speaks of the power of words. And then finally in verses 7 through 12, he pleads his case uh, for words to properly reflect uh, and be consistent with a truly converted heart. And so to make things easy, points one, two, and three, point one would be a warning, point two, an illustration, and point three, a plea. So James' first concern is really to burst some bubbles of infatuation with teaching or platform ministry or Christian leadership, uh, that those who desire these kinds of positions uh, would realize the seriousness and responsibility and the vulnerability and difficulty of not stumbling when words is really what you do and when your position as a Christian leader in, in any sort of position, whether it's Sunday school or, or um, teaching a Bible study or heading a home fellowship group, uh, when your position as a leader carries so much weight, Now, I read some interesting statistics. The average person spends one-fifth of their life talking. If all our words were put into print, a single single day's words would fill a 50-page book, while in a year's time, the average person's words would fill 132 books of 200 pages each. Among all those words, there are bound to be some spoken in anger and carelessness and Haste or mean-spirited words. And so, you know, the thought is this. If uh, we were to open up a book right now of every word that each one of us spoke this last week and we were to read them out loud in public or have the Lord seated next to us and have us go over every last word of every page of every book of every word of last week, there'd probably not be any pages free of red ink where there wasn't a problem pointed out by the Lord of improper speech. And James' point really is, is be careful when you're a Christian leader or you, or you bear the, the title Christian because where words are many, sin is not absent, as Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 it's just we all stumble in many ways, he's saying, and it's how much more difficult when words are what you do and carry such weight with other people. There are 158 proverbs that deal with words, the tongue, the mouth, and speech. And there's so many ways to stumble. The overused gossiping tongue and the critical tongue the hateful tongue, the lying tongue, the flattering tongue, the proud tongue, the boastful uh, tongue as well, and the deceitful tongue and the cursing, profane, blaspheming tongue. There's so many ways for the tongue to cause us great harm and to sin before the Lord. And yet there was this big clamor in the first century church to hold a position of respect as a teacher And so James says they really need to sober up and consider what it is that they're getting into. Here's a paraphrase of the opening thoughts here. Considering how wild our tongues are and so difficult to control, I suggest many of you would be Christian leaders who want to teach 
give it a second thought, you do realize that God is going to hold us more accountable than others, we teachers. I mean, we are all so prone to sin. And imagine if you could never sin with your mouth, if you had perfect words, you'd be pretty much a perfect person. And if you got control of the tongue, the rest of it would be a piece of cake. And so what James is saying in the opening remarks is all who claim to know Jesus must choose their words wisely. And those who enter ministry as teachers must realize their profound responsibility before God. He's already told us we need to be slow to speak. And so um, these the, it's a wonderful uh, honor to be in Christian leadership where we teach and proclaim God's word. And, you know, it's not just about teachers because the Bible declares that we all are to uh, go into all the world and preach the gospel and teaching men to obey. And so the general call over every Christian life is to teach. And so, but particularly, of course, those who uh, teach as a Christian leader need to be very careful. Now, first of all, he's saying get the stars out of your eyes when it comes to holding any kind of uh, position of respect in the church where you teach. Uh, He's not discouraging qualified, called, gifted teachers to enter ministry. I mean, there's always a shortage of good Christian teachers. And Jesus even said in Luke 10, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He's not discouraging uh, Christians from entering ministry where they teach, uh, nor is he saying it's wrong to have that desire. First um, Timothy 3 says, here's a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, an elder, leader in the church, he desires a noble task, a good thing, he's saying. But with that, don't be infatuated about it. Don't just only see the, the honor and the respect and, and uh, the glory of that kind of position, but to understand the soberness of it. Now, this is a carryover thought from Jewish thinking. Um, the rabbi, which means my great one, was a great honor, and the Jewish people really respected rabbis. And <clears throat> unfortunately, it went to the rabbis' heads as well. Many of the Pharisees who were wanting to be called by this title, he, Jesus says there, In the Gospels, these men love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats on the platform. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi or my great one or master. And in fact, that's what it's called in the King James, how King James translates that word. So James says, uh, don't be led astray by that kind of desire of selfish ambition um, and not realize how serious God sees um, every word that comes out of our mouths as Christians and more so as Christian leaders. Um, Many of you know that I taught for four years in Japan and the the position there is highly respected. It's one of the highest respected vocations in all of the Orient is to teach. In fact, the word in Japanese is sensei, 
which is a word that means master, but you and you never use it of yourself if you are a teacher. There's another word, a polite, uh, more humble word, kyoshi. And so I would say, watashi wa kyoshi desu. That means I am a humble form of teacher. And they would respond, oh, sensei desu ka? So you're a master, and then you, you know, try to be humble about it. But, it, I mean, it can really go to your head. And James sees that, these people who are just starry-eyed about getting into position where they're teaching. And James says, you better sober up about that because God will hold us more accountable. It's a slippery and precarious thing in Christian ministry when a man feels the calling and gifting and presence and authority of heaven come together and lives are impacted and the destinies of men are changed from hell to heaven. It just can be very intoxicating and uh, potentially your pride and your ego, misguided self-importance and delusions of grandeur and all of that can just really ruin your soul. I advise my seminary students who are going into the ministry to remember their total depravity, how sinful they are without the Lord and and who they are and what they are capable of doing without God's grace. I tell them to remember who it was who called them and how dependent they are and we are and I am upon the goodness of the Holy Spirit and how um, humble we ought to be. Second Corinthians twelve nine really says when God want, wishes to use a man, he breaks a man and, and he expects us not to let um, platform ministry or um, ministries of respect or leadership um, to get to our heads and to fill us with pride. And so um, James is adding another reason to be grounded when we call ourselves a Christian or any kind of Christian leadership. Another reason is because of how vulnerable we are. Words are so easily to go bad and wrong, and and it can be deadly in our uh, profession. One bad call in counseling or one exaggeration of the word of God or one omission or one falsehood or one uh, misinterpretation can send a soul off in the wrong direction. And who's accountable for that? Hundreds and thousands of people uh, take a pastor's advice and, and put it into their lives. And if it's wrong, if you tell somebody, you know, you're sick because you don't have enough faith. Or if you had more faith, God will bless you financially. And, and, and people take that and uh, they get misled. And the Lord says, because of the weight that your words carry as a Christian leader, you will be judged more strictly about that. That whole God told me to tell you thing. I got into a conversation with someone and I said that that's really not the way to go is to walk around casually and saying, God told me to tell you. Like Chuck Smith says, you know, when somebody says that to him, he says right away, you know what? Just stop. God knows where I live. He's got my address. If he wants to get through to me, he knows how to do that. Um, 
I had professors in uh, seminary say that you don't need to t- say God told me to tell you. You just say it or share how you feel inspired and leave the rest to the person and the Holy Spirit. Because what if you're wrong? And somebody would say to, back to me, well, where's your faith? And I say, well, where's your fear of God? If you're wrong, you're misrepresenting the living God. And how bad is that? And so James says, keep in mind, God will krema in the Greek more uh, means judgment or evaluation. God will evaluate those who who call themselves Christian leaders, who speak for him, and we all are ambassadors of Christ. We're all representing him. He will hold us more accountable. And that makes total sense, obviously, for a couple reasons. With more knowledge and understanding comes accountability. Uh, to whom much is given, much is required. So who is more you know, guilty? The new employee who hasn't read the manual and uh, breaks... A policy, or the one who really put the policy book together, you know, as the vice president. The vice president breaks that policy. He is more accountable and should be punished uh, with greater severity than the person without the knowledge. And that's just a biblical idea. And our words affect others so deeply, as I've been saying. Um, So going on here, believers will be judged at what's called the Bema Seat, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Uh, Every human soul will face judgment of God. Uh, Christians uh, with an ending at the second coming, with an ending of eternal life, an evaluation that just looks at our faithfulness and uh, is about reward or a lack of reward and responsibilities given out in the life to come. The other judgment happens after the thousand-year reign called the Millennial Kingdom. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. And all those who um, will eventually perish, all the wicked, will be resurrected and judged. And there, every careless and idle word will mean something. At the end of that judgment, it all ends in hell. And so... um, A true believer with reckless words will lose reward. TV preachers who fill stadiums but not men's hearts with the word of God will not fare well on that day. And so called Christians with never a kind word to say who love to talk smack about others and criticize them just have to look forward to uh, a fiery judgment. They themselves may be saved in the end, but not with a lot to show for it. And so moving on to the next thought, first he warns, especially the teachers and those who wish to speak up for God, to remember your vulnerability and to remember the coming stricter judgment. And then point two would be the illustration, and actually there are several bits for horses, rudders for ships, and a spark that causes a fire. Now the first two illustrations are making the same point. Now let me paraphrase both of those. First, if you want to gain control of a muscle-bound, wildly-spirited, 1,200-pound Appaloosa, get control of its tongue, and the whole animal has been subdued. It will obey you. Turn right, turn left, stop on your command. 
Now the second illustration, paraphrase. Or take a giant ship. They face fierce winds and, and strong currents, and yet a small rudder directs the entire vessel wherever the captain wants to go. So the point here is the bit and the rudder are small, but extremely important. Um, if they're not controlled, the entire horse is out of control or the entire ship is lost at sea. And something as small as the tongue can have tremendous power for either good or evil. Now, did you know battleships, they're 900 feet long, 65,000 tons, and the rudders are five feet long. And a standard bit for a horse that could be as tall as 19 hands and 2,000 pounds is five inches in width. And then there's us, a human tongue, three and a half inches um, long and an inch and a half wide. And uh, so what he's saying here is that the tongue is small, but like the rudder and the bit, in capable hands... Just wonderful, beautiful things can happen for um, there's power of life and death in that small little member of our body called the tongues. Proverbs says, pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. And, and an anxious heart weighs down a man, but a kind word cheers him up. And uh, the tongue of the wise brings Healing and gold there is, and rubies in abundance, but lips that speak knowledge are a rare jewel. Over and over again, just the, the wonder of the life giving power of our words. And so, to encourage somebody, to build them up, to soothe their fears and, and um, their hurt, to comfort them, to set their hearts free or at rest. To bring healing, joy, and confidence. To lead someone out of darkness and into light. And to give them wisdom for their problem or to help them escape hell and come to know the Lord. It's all about using the tongue wisely and in self-control and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm thinking of the illustration that James is using. The beauty of Olympic dressage where horses do this ballet of just this effortless dance it's so beautiful these wild animals and and the sailing vessels on the open seas maneuvering gracefully through the waves and being steered so gracefully and 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 this is the idea is what a joy to be able to use your words in ways that are so beneficial and life-giving to people i remember when i had cancer and I was just, I mean, I almost died, and this is eight years ago, and I was so down and discouraged, and somebody just, you know, it was the right moment, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he looked me square in the eyes and said, the Lord is not done using you. He's got good things for you in store. He's got things for you to do, and that encouragement, man, I felt... Like there was life and power that just came up out of the earth and into the soles of my feet and up into the core of my being and just gave me hope again. And It was just wonderful how many times over my ministry and my life I have seen that happen with people, between people in the congregation and just how using their words to build one another up has just been such a beautiful thing to behold 
But when the bit's not working and the rudder's broken, disaster's just a heartbeat away. Um, an unbridled tongue, man. When the bit's not working, you've got a crazed horse and somebody's going to get kicked in the head. And when the rudder's broken, you're going to shipwreck on, on some really jagged rocks and lives are going to be really devastated. Listen to all of these Proverbs. Proverbs twenty six twenty eight. A lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Proverbs sixteen twenty eight, A perverse man stirs up dissension, and a gossip separates close friends. Proverbs 10, verse 8, The wise in heart accept commands, but a chattering fool comes to ruin. Proverbs twelve eighteen, Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs twenty one twenty three. He who guards his mouth and his tongue keeps himself from calamity. Proverbs eighteen six and seven. A fool's lips bring him strife, and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his undoing, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Just a few more here. Proverbs five and verse three. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Proverbs 10.18, whoever spreads slander is a fool. Proverbs 14.3, a fool's talk brings a rod to his back, but the lips of the wise protect them. And there's a hundred more just like it. Reckless words pierce like a sword. You'll never amount to anything or you're a loser or I hate you or nobody likes you. Or why don't you go away and you're not important or you can't do that very well. I told you before about a friend of mine from Bible college days whose mom would comb his hair in the mirror when he was seven years old. And she'd make remarks about that he was not handsome, but that he made up for it in other ways. But she was always just letting him know that she didn't think that he was very handsome. And that just, it broke him. And to this day now, a dad and a grown man, he has trouble looking at himself in the mirror, not feeling pain. And I'm sure everybody who's hearing this message is remembering a hurtful statement. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, they will harm. And, And you can heal from the sticks and stones, But sometimes you will never heal from a word that pierces your spirit. We need to stop and think, James says, because of the power of the tongue. Uh, Our biggest problem, of course, as Christians with the tongue is gossip. And here's a great definition. Basically, speaking about a person or situation that's none of our business with a superior fault-finding attitude that exalts self and tears down and demeans others, making ourselves feel good by making someone else look bad, destroying their character and reputation. And so he says, you know, the tongue, verse 5, is a small part, but it makes great boasts. And when we're doing this thing called gossiping and backbiting and slandering, what we're doing is saying, you know, I'm smarter. I know about the situation. I'm more spiritual. I'm better than they are. I know what's really going on. She's this way. He's that way. Or you're just that way. 
it's very sad because once these words happen, you can't just like on your computer um, hit undo and have it be undone. Those words are out there. You can apologize, you can be forgiven, but those words cannot be taken back ever. And so we need to be careful about those things. Um, we are really sick people. We are depraved. We will forge relationships with one another based on talking badly about somebody else. So uh, you and I will be bonded by our mutual uh, disparaging of somebody else. And we can't just seem to be friends with somebody without um, wanting to tear somebody else down so that we feel closer to one another. Um, <clears throat> it's just a terrible thing. And we're just, uh, it would be nice just to be able to be friends with people without needing to tear other people down so that we would feel better or look better to the people we want to impress. And so, you know, so by the way, James is just going to say in verse 6, this kind of thing has a source, you know, and you know who the, the father of all of this stuff is, is Satan. He says, it's, your tongue, when you do these things, is set on fire by hell. And, uh, and true it is. Satan's name means slanderer. That's what the word means, is that he's the one with an out-of-control tongue that hurts people. That's his name. And so when we are doing that, we are very much like him. In fact, here's a quote. When our tongues are out of control, doing harm to others, then are we most like the devil, who is the father and source of all destructive and per perverse speech. Jesus said in John 10, 10, that he came to give life, abundant life, but the enemy came to kill, steal, and destroy. And how does the enemy do that? He does that with words. So we have to be careful that we are more like our Heavenly Father who builds up and lifts up and encourages and sees the best in people. Not afraid to talk about um, difficult things, but speaking the truth in love and weighing our conversation, not letting it become profane, but keeping things pure and so we've seen the warning, and we've seen some illustrations here. And also he mentions, you know, consider the small spark that will light up an entire um, forest fire. Now a plea. Let me paraphrase, and then we'll be done. Just about every critter in the world can be tamed on land and in the sea. The tiger will roll over. The killer whale will leap out of the water on command. The man's tongue, though, will not be silenced. It has a mind of its own. It cannot be tamed by man's willpower. And how sad is that? The same tongue that sings glorious praises and offers pr prayers to the living God criticizes and tears down those he made and loves and died for. Out of the same mouth comes, I love you, Lord, and I can't stand that guy over there. My dear, dear brothers and sisters, does this sound right to you? Can salty water flow out of a freshwater lake? Can an apple tree grow oranges? Can a watermelon vine produce potatoes? You get my point. It's just impossible. 
Now, finally here, a plea for integrity. And what I mean by integrity here is what it really means in its origin. The word integrity means how things fit together as one, the one-pieceness of something. Uh, For example, if a man is the same at church and at home and at work and at at a hotel on business, um, he has integrity. Because he's one fabric, no matter how you slice him, he's the same. And so James is saying, if you've got the spring of living water in you, with the holy God by his Holy Spirit's presence in your heart, then what your lips speak as an overflow of that heart ought to be consistent with the spring in the well. The water ought to match the source of the well. If the source of the well you claim is a holy God, then the water ought to be clean and pure uh, for the most part. Of course, he says we all stumble in many ways. We know we're going to get a little mouthful of something brackish or salty here and there. Um, but generally speaking, he's saying an apple tree ought to make apples. A, an orange tree ought to make oranges. A grapevine grapes and a Christian words that build up, words that are clean and right and not twisted and perverse and dark and evil. Now, just interesting, very interesting that he doesn't say clean it up or he's not he he's the advice he gives is no no advice at all he's making a terribly eerie um, point he's just saying it's impossible what you're doing so if you're constantly mean-spirited and tearing people down and cussing and and uh, unchristian things are constantly coming out of your mouth all he's saying is oh by the way it's impossible that christ is in there now that will lead you to repentance that will lead you to confession that will lead you to a greater intimacy Um, if christ is truly in there then you get right with him and then he can truly flow as you cooperate with him but his james point is just just the smack across the face just saying if from your kitchen faucet comes fresh water and sewer water all day long it's unusable it's unsafe there needs to be some major repairs now galatians five twenty four says those who belong to christ jesus have crucified their sinful nature with its passions and desires so in other words the source that does spew some sinful sewage from time to time is within us a sin people, but that sinful nature with the help of the Holy Spirit has been crucified and considered and reckoned dead. And so to walk with the Lord and keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, we're able not to um, let that sewer flow. And that's really what walking with the Lord and being a disciple of his and the Christian disciplines are all about, to keep us full of the Holy Spirit and overflowing with the gifts and fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. And and those are manifested in our words as we are filled with God's Spirit and not with the things of the world and the things of the flesh. Sinful things, because that then the old man, as we call 
the sinful nature has a chance to manifest and does so through um, unholy words. So the plea is not clean up your act, but just pointing out the sheer impossibility of a Christian whose words are always inconsistent with Christ. And so, uh, seriously, he's just closing with this thought. At best, you're a weak Christian when you have those kinds of words falling out of your mouth consistently. And at worst, you're, you don't know the Lord at all. You may think you know the Lord, but your words are showing you what's inside your heart. So there's a call to repentance, a call to sober reflection, a call to action. Now, I really love, in closing with this thought, that Isaiah chapter 6, the closer we get to the Lord, we, we see our... Um, unholiness and sinfulness. Isaiah catches a glimpse. He's in the presence of the Lord and he says, woe to me. I'm undone. I'm ruined. I'm a man of what? Unclean lips. And he recognizes, even though he's a man of God, called of God, God's going to use him in glorious ways. He recognizes in the presence of the Lord that he's spoken in ways he ought not to have. And he says, I am a man of filthy, unclean lips. And wonderful scene there that one of the seraphs flies from heaven with a, with a coal from the altars glowing and touches it to his lips and says, your sins are covered and, and atoned for. And, and that beautiful picture just Every time I imagine that, I, I, I want that coal to touch my own lips. And further, not the lips, but the, 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 the sewer heart that produces and launches those words onto the tongue in the first place. And, and that's what the Holy Spirit, the baptism of fire from the Holy Spirit is all about. It's so funny that, and not surprising as we wrap up here, that Acts chapter 2, the very first sign uh, from heaven on the birth, with the birth of the entire Christian church, the first thing you hear this wind, and what do you see? Tongues of fire above their heads, and their tongues now under the influence of the Holy Spirit as they're speaking in languages they did not learn or know. And so it's as if to say, well, now, with the advent of the Holy Spirit who's going to come and live inside of you, now that tongue can be tamed, not by man, not by man's power or will, but by yielding to the Holy Spirit now who brings his fire and his power to burn out the dross and the wickedness and to bring power to, to control that tongue and make it obey him. Now it can speak as the Holy Spirit gives it utterance. And now we have power to stop instead of going on with the conversation that's gone south. And we, we both know in the conversation uh, we've taken a turn for the worst here. And we can stop. We have the power now. And we can repent. And then we can fix things and we can say things that, that build up and things that are pure and things that bring life. Now, thanks to the powerful Holy Spirit who we give control to, not just in our hearts, 
but our lips as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. And it is true, Father, we all stumble in many ways. And we have stumbled with our lips. And we have said things that we ought not to say. Hurtful things. We ask your forgiveness. We ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit to make our words just a wonderful outpouring of the love of God, the goodness of God, things that are excellent and true and just and noble and right and pure and worthy of praise and helpful and beneficial and edifying and life-giving, soothing and refreshing and making peace. All of these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org. 